This morning's readings from Matthew chapter 7, and we start at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Please keep your Bibles open at that passage, and let's pray that the Lord will make it come alive to us. Lord, we ask that you will open your word to our hearts and our heart to your words. Amen. Paul has already reminded us this morning that at this time of year, people tend to come to Oxford and quite a lot of them go to check out churches. What does the church stand for? St. Andrews um, sets out to be a real family of God, embracing all ages and races and backgrounds. That's the authentic discipleship that we are after. <clears throat> and in the next three Sundays, we're going to be looking at three sides of that discipleship. Today, um, making disciples. And you could hardly find a more relevant passage of scripture than the end of the Sermon on the Mount to define the making of disciples. Disciples of whom? Disciples of what? Many people think the sermon is about um, ethical behavior. Uh, others regard it as an impossible ideal that we should try and stretch towards. But actually, this end section of the greatest sermon ever preached answers two of the most critical questions we could ever ask. 
Who is this preacher? What is his message? Who is this preacher who looks for disciples? A brilliant rabbi from long ago, uh, perhaps the greatest religious teacher that the world has ever seen? No. Let your eye run over this passage. He could confidently call God his father, verse 21. He can tell us where we will stand on judgment day, verse 22. He can declare that the tree of our lives is good or bad, verse 19. He can say at the end of life, no access or through road, verses 13 and 14. People prophesy in his name, and that in Israel is only done in the name of God. He lets people call him Lord, verse 22, and doesn't correct them. And you will be rejected from the kingdom of God if you do not know him, verse 23. And Jesus um, <laughs> brings this to a conclusion by inheriting the character of God Almighty referred to in the Old Testament. He is the rock, verse 24. Build your house on the house of your life on him and it will stand, he says. Build on anything else and it will land in ruins. No ordinary preacher, this. He brings God onto the stage of human history, and he has the claim of God, no less, upon our lives. This is the Jesus whose disciples we at St. Andrew's strive to be. Of course, it could look narrow and exclusive, this. Isn't it arrogant? Yes, it would be if we made this claim for a system, for Christianity. I don't make that claim for Christianity. I make that claim for Christ, which is a very different matter. With Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we believe that Jesus Christ came to destroy religion. Religion is an attempt to climb up to God. Jesus brings God down to us. It's radically different. So this is our preacher. This is the one who calls for our allegiance and wants to make us his disciples. Very well. If that's the preacher, what is his message? He makes it very plain, drawing on imagery that everybody could understand. He talks about travel, he talks about agriculture, and he talks about building. It is actually a devastating challenge in each of those images, and it's brought home to us in three ways. Look first at the gate and the road, verses 13 and 14. That poses the question, uh, have you gone through the gate? Are you on the road? You cannot get onto the road until you've gone through the turnstiles, and they're not very wide. There's no room for baggage, for pride, for indecision. Enter he says. There's no comfortable middle ground. It's not about being as good as the next person. It's about entering God's kingdom or staying out. 
It's about being on the road that starts narrow, it may seem, but it broadens out into the life of heaven. Or staying on the broad road of our self-centeredness until it contracts into a dead end of final destruction. That's where the making of a disciple begins. We are not permitted just to admire the teaching. We are called to surrender to the preacher. Have you entered in? That's the question. Are you on the road? Very powerful question, isn't it? He follows it up with the next image, the tree and the fruits, from verse 15 onwards. How can people know the real disciple? Answer, from the fruit of their life. It's as simple as that. You see, the question is not just have you entered in. The question is, is there real change? A profession of faith that makes no difference to the way we behave is utterly barren. There must be fruit, consistent, attractive fruit on the tree of our lives. Fruit that will show that the gardener has been at work. Fruit that will satisfy the hunger of the passerby. But sadly, in many professing Christians, the fruit is a bit rotten. There's an arrogance that alienates people. There's a formalism that doesn't touch the heart. There's a faith that makes no demands or a religion that helps nobody. People judge the tree by the fruit. And the awesome truth that Jesus teaches here is that so does God. If the fruit is not there, then we may take leave to doubt whether the root is there either. And the third image he brings us is the wise and the foolish builders, verses 24 to 27. And the claim here is stark. Jesus does not agree that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. He does not agree that we're all climbing up to God by our own route up the same mountain. He will not tolerate our shallow pluralism. Instead, he says, there are only two ways we can build. Not many ways, just two. Either we build on him and on his teaching, which we will find as solid as a rock, or else we can build on any other ideology or worldview or lifestyle, and we'll find that it's sand and in the last day will spell ruin. I wouldn't dare to preach like that. But that's how Jesus preaches. And we need to listen. And this final image you see of the building follows up the previous two. The question is not only have you entered in, not only is there real change, but what is the foundation of your life? So we must build on the rock. But how? Well, look at verse 24. 
It's actually the heart of Old Testament religion. It's the heart of New Testament religion as well. We must hear and obey. Not just hear, but do. The Christian world is full of hearing. It's overloaded with God talk. But what will thrill the heart of God and make unbelievers question their unbelief is practical, generous obedience, as spelt out earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, you have obedience to Christ that transforms character and affects our influence and shows itself in practical righteousness. In chapter 6, it's a life where the devotional side of us is touched and where our ambitions are radically changed. And then in chapter 7, it's a life that transforms our relationships and marks us out as wholehearted servants of the King. That is what Jesus is looking for. That is the making of a real disciple. That is the kingdom manifesto put out by Jesus with immense authority at the very outset of his public ministry. So what can we take away from this amazing passage? I think we can take away three imperatives in the making of disciples, three indispensable musts. The word must doesn't come very often in the New Testament, but these three must happen. First, there's the Jesus we must know. That's fundamental. We can know all about Jesus and still be shut out. We can do all sorts of church stuff, prophetic ministry, charismatic stuff, swinging from the chandeliers, bags of good works. We can do all of that and still be excluded. We've got to enter in. We've got to dig down and build on Christ the rock. We've got to know him. His arms are lovingly extended to us. We've got to tumble into those arms and to do so with awe and gratitude. It's all too easy to know about him. I mean, this story of the two builders, it's in every little painted picture book for tiny tots. Everybody knows about it. But that's a very different thing from personal encounter and growing relationship and knowing him. I know a lot about Andrew Strauss. But Andrew, and it's nice to see him back, knows him. That's the difference. And that's where discipleship begins. Where we can honestly say, I know whom I have believed. Those awesome words on the day of judgment, I never knew you. Don't risk it. The Jesus we must know. And then it says, the next must is the life we must lead. It is no good to talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. Our lives must show fruit, which is pleasing to God and attractive to non-Christians. This is not icing on the cake of discipleship. It is the cake itself. And the third must is this. 
and with it I close. It's the future we must face. Because the wind and the storms of life and the hail will in the end engulf every one of us. We will all die. And scripture says this, it is appointed to all men once to die and after that the judgment. And the issue then will be, not have you gone to church, not were you in this or that movement, but do you know me? Have you entered in? Is Jesus your rock, your foundation? If you aren't sure about that, then I urge you to join one of the Alpha groups, which is going to start uh, at the very beginning of October. On the table outside, you'll find um, invitations to the launch party at a very smart cafe, by the way, called South. You're very welcome to pick up one of these if you are not sure about it. In fact, there's another Alpha a group meeting somewhere else. I don't know where it is at the moment. But no matter, if you're not sure, this is what you need to get involved in. And if we have entered in, if we have Christ as our foundation, there will actually be a judgment for Christians. The New Testament's very clear about that. It's not about our salvation, but it's about how we have served the one who's called us. The question will be, how have you lived? We're not saved by our good works, but saving faith always produces good works, works that can survive God's scrutiny on that awesome day of judgment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this shattering ending to the Sermon on the Mount. And we pray that on that day of judgment, there may not be one of us to whom you have sadly to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. May we enter in if we've never done so. May we bear fruit that will last and that will please you and help others. And may we build ever more firmly on that rock, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.